The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Score Big, do you know that 40% of all live event tickets go unsold? Score Big works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get those unsold seats at huge savings. Go to scorebig.com right now, click on the microphone, and enter the promo code GABFEST. You'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's scorebig.com, promo code GABFEST. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size, and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep, and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com slash GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for April 21st, 2016, the dreaming of 1237 edition of the Gabfest. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is across from me. He has lost his glasses, so if you sense a certain myopia in what John says today, that is possibly it. Then in New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, John and Emily. Indeed. Hi. Hi. On this week's GabFest, Hillary Clinton's huge victory in New York, did it clinch her the nomination? Then, Donald Trump's huge victory in New York, did it (laughs) clinch him the nomination? Then, the Supreme Court is headed for another 4-4 tie in a major case, this time over immigration and executive authority. Is this important? Is it significant? I'm sure it is to Emily Bazelon, so we'll hear why. Plus, (laughs) Only me. Only to you, not to the nation. Uh, Or to 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 your 4 million million people. Right. Be granted deportation relief. No, no. Only me. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, Harriet Tubman boots Andrew Jackson off the front of the $20 bill, which is great news. We will we will talk about that. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Two announcements. We have our Atlanta live show next week, next Wednesday night, April 27th, 730 at the first center Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. There are still some tickets available. It's going to be a great show. We have a cool gimmick planned for it. It's going to be fun in the room. John is... Expectation raiser. You you say it as expectation raiser. I say it as I'm trying to get people to buy the tickets, John. They will buy the tickets for the, because they have a deep relationship with you, uh, you know, formed over these many years. Well, with and you. And they wouldn't want to undermine you. that gimmick relationship. Gimmick never sells anything. You're right. Like, gimmick is the word gimmick, gimmick You're right. Gimmick something. is terrible. No. Okay. All right. Uh, what's What What word we would shall we use for it? Extravaganza. Experience. Game. Adventure. It, all of those things true. All true. Also, another live show coming up in Washington, D.C., July 13th, right before the conventions. We're going to be at the Warner Theater. Again, Slate.com slash live. That's going to be a killer show because there's going to be so much news because the conventions are coming up and we haven't been in D.C. for a while. So we look forward to seeing you there on July 13th. And then finally, we are still, for a little brief more time, taking applicants for our intern position. You can send a resume and cover letter to gabfest at slate.com. It's paid. It's DC-based. It's part-time. It's fun. It opens doors. So get in touch. Early exit polls on Tuesday night suggested that Hillary Clinton had only a narrow four-point lead over Bernie Sanders in the New York primary. But by the time the votes were actually counted in that primary, that Democratic primary, she had won by 18 points, 17 points, added to her delegate lead and made it vanishingly difficult for Sanders to defeat her for the nomination or for Sanders at least to to get enough delegates to outpoll her going into the convention. So, John, why did she do so well in New York? Did she do well in New York or did she, she did just well. do OK? In New no, York? no, she did well. She did well. That was I mean, she beat the average of the polls going into the election and, you know, when election day for Bernie Sanders is better than the average of the polls going into it, it's seen as a big shock. And Clinton showed up about four or so points higher than the average of the polls. She did well because she's been uh, a representative of that state. She lives in that state. Her daughter lives in the state. Her husband lives in the state. It was a closed primary, which meant only registered Democrats could participate. And it was a diverse electorate, which is the kind of electorate that she's done well in before. And Bernie Sanders said she was unqualified and 
did other things that both created, I think, some some greater sense of rallying around her for her group and then pinned him down so that he couldn't make inroads into the electorates he needed to make inroads with. So without having made the inroads, the voters didn't show up for him. They showed up for her. Assuming she performs strongly in the Sela primary next week, the what is it? Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Connecticut, Connecticut, Rhode Rhode Connecticut. and Rhode Island. And wait, what was the other one? Can, can, uh, can, <laughs> Calif- can, 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 I can't remember. Uh, assuming she performs strongly in that, is that, essentially finish it i mean doesn't sanders have to get something like 70 percent of the vote in the remaining contest to catch up with her which is of, of the delegates yeah thank you I thought, see it is mathematically possible for bernie sanders to win the number of delegates but it is barely mathematically possible it requires almost magical thinking so that's the way it is now it's likely to be even more so the case after those primaries so you know Crazy things could happen. Uh, she could drop out of the race. She could, you know, I mean, if you get... Get if you, indicted. If you go to the full breadth of human possibility, yes. But based on the way the ball has bounced so far, you don't expect it to go zinging off in some other direction. You know, and also I think the sense of movement that Bernie Sanders had gets a little bit sapped by her victory in New York. Right. It, Emily, should Sanders... In the event that he doesn't do great next week, should he go gently into that good night? Should he stop campaigning or should he just keep campaigning? He has the money. He's allowed to 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 run against her for as long as he wants. If I were him, I would just figure out how to declare victory in so many ways. He won. No one expected him to make it this far. His message has had a great deal of influence on positions Clinton has taken. I mean, she came out for eventually of $15. Well, she didn't totally say that. She came close to endorsing a $15 minimum wage for the whole country, which is almost double what we have. I mean, I I was like, I couldn't believe it when that happened. Did you guys think well, that was she, crazy? You know, you she, she backed away from it. No, well, it? so her position has been that you have a national wage of 12 and then you allow states flexibility because there are some labor markets in certain states where $15 would be too much and it would have an effect on job loss. So that's a perfectly defensible policy position. And in the debate, it was unclear whether, A, she was just mangling her position because she was just being clumsy and churlish, or B, she was fuzzing it up for the purposes of fuzzing it up and making everybody think everywhere what she wanted them to think. In other words, the number of policy experts who are going to not vote for her uh, because she supported a $15 national minimum wage was going to be a hell of a lot smaller than those who might vote for her if she's on for 15. So, and her position always had a weird wiggle, which was she's for the fight for 15 in the places in the states where they're fighting for 15, where it matters in the labor market there. She just didn't support it at the national level. I, I found that just a big either model or just what irritates people about Hillary Clinton, which is basically she was trying to have it both ways and trying to have it both ways, not on a stupid issue about emails, but on an important policy issue that really matters to what a lot of people think is the central question of the campaign, which is how do you help people with wages, bread and butter stuff that she's potentially being uh, sneaky on. My main point was just that Bernie Sanders has done enormously well for himself. If he does this right, he's going to he could leave this race with like his dignity utterly intact, his star appeal completely amplified, many people continuing to feel really, really good about him. So he just has to play it out in whatever way keeps that going. I wonder what doing it right means in 1980 when Kennedy went all the way to the convention He definitely bruised a lot of feelings, uh, and some people say weakened Carter so much that Reagan was able to beat Carter. As a result, I think Hillary Clinton has weakened herself a lot of times. I don't think there's really anything, even when when Sanders said Hillary Clinton was unqualified, I'm sure that will come back from the Republicans, but I think there's so much more ammunition that Democrats can use than than Republicans can use about Hillary Clinton. Has... This campaign made Hillary Clinton a stronger candidate or a weaker one. There was a lot of talk by many people, including me, actually, before the campaign started, before it, it, it was clear that Sanders was going to be such a powerful rival, that Hillary Clinton needed a contentious campaign to help her and test her and test her message and test her polling and test her ground game. 
She's obviously been bruised by this campaign in many ways. She's been appeared weak. She's appeared less interesting. She's been hit on on the Wall Street stuff. She's had to move to the left in, in various ways. But is the gain that she's become she's been tested in the in the campaign and activated herself and that there is now a whole cadre of lively Bernie Sanders voters who are more likely perhaps to come out and vote in the general than they might have been had he not run. Is that all in all good for her or all in all bad for her? What do you think, Emily? I basically think it's still been good for her because all of these weaknesses were going to come out anyway. And so now we've had like a very long dress rehearsal of them. What I can't tell is whether she and her people have gotten better at responding to all of them. I mean, my fears about her and her campaign remain. It's kind of brittle slightly paranoid on the other hand it does feel like all the things we knew and many of us don't like about the clintons have gotten an airing so then i mean they're going to come back obviously they're going to come back but they won't be news to us and i was also thinking about the whole problem of how a lot of voters there's some research showing that voters don't like women when they're campaigning because they have to promote and sell themselves in this way that is just seen as like unfeminine or unappealing in in women and i mean you can see that with hillary clinton that we all the her poll numbers were so much better when she was secretary of state and maybe this is unhelpful because we have obviously a big election season in front of us and the fact that people might like her when she is in office isn't going to help her with that but i do wonder if since we've already had her campaigning we can sort of there'll be there'll be some push to have a different feeling about her i don't know maybe that's just like a fake media narrative john what do you think i'm all for fake um, media narratives i think you're (laughs) I think you're right about the I think the campaign will certainly use the tough primary to say when something comes up that's unpleasant for her. Oh, that was all adjudicated in the primary. Now, that won't be be true on some things. I think you're generally right. She was given a test uh, and a workout on some issues. The email scandal, for one, I think her answers are still deeply unsatisfying when she says things like I've been the most I've been transparent I mean, she just Ugh. hasn't been, you know, and so she right. she mints new problems with each answer. So none of that was improved in the primaries. It was probably made worse. However, they've gotten they just went through a lot of batting practice. I mean, what Bernie Sanders did was capture a lot of names, people who are drawn into the process, whose names are now in email addresses or on contact lists and t- to whom she could make an appeal about the tilted playing field, about how she is going to carry forward those messages. And the com- the comparison won't be perfection versus Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. It'll be Hillary Clinton versus <laughs> Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, probably. And you, right. she at least has an argument and a whole new set of people to, to whom she can make that argument, who Bernie Sanders pulled out uh, and who Bernie Sanders might help be the, um, you know, uh, the shoehorn to help uh, make that fit. And, you know, now she just has to learn to exploit it. Okay, we will talk uh, more, of course, about the Democratic race next week after the Acela primary. Do people really call it the Acela primary? I keep saying that. No, I don't just, think they do. Just, and if they do, they should It's like it's a, it's a, it's a real douchey kind of coinage. Uh, coinaging in general has really gone I wouldn't to mind the dogs. if you said, like, Northeast Corridor or even Amtrak. It's the idea that everybody's the Amtrak. on the expensive Acela. That well, but, except, yeah. but you can't call it Amtrak because then you you shouldn't define Amtrak, which is, uh, there, you know, there's something is there, there's something about a train and its magic that goes all across the country uh, yeah, but, as opposed to just the Northeast. True. But the Amtrak, the Northeast part of Amtrak is the only part of Amtrak that works. Uh, if by that you mean... The train and not the Wi-Fi on the train. Um, uh, see, now that's like now you're in the, the, the douchey phase here. No, no. I think free Wi-Fi. If there's free Wi-Fi at McDonald's, then uh, free Wi-Fi on a train is not a, a sign of status. Can I make a different observation about the regular train versus Acela? They smell really different to me. They're using a completely different set of cleaning tools on it's, the regular You know why? Train. Because the regular I, train I, is... I ride on the regular train, and usually when I'm riding on the regular train, I'm like stink because that's at the, like at the end of a long day, no, and it's me. It's, not, it's like it's stinking. like ninety percent me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the smell of my childhood because those are the trains yeah. from my childhood. Right. Also, those little like seat covers on the top, the seat cover thing that they put. I guess so you're not gonna get lice. I don't know. That yeah, is yeah so but those also have been there since your childhood. 
I know. And then the Acela has this whole different like vibe and smell. And I notice it every time I get on either one or the other. Anyway. What the Acela has that the regular train doesn't have is the talking macho lawyers. Well, you tell him that we're not going to take that meeting. And I told him, I told him, unless we get those by the 15th, he's not going to have a deal. I mean, these guys, it's like they don't realize they're on a train. But I guess right. if you talk like that, no, you they have do, all kinds maybe. of problems that you, uh, that, that, that self, so a sense of yourself. I re- so I ride the regular train every week. I don't take the SL anymore because startup, I work for a startup. And uh, so it what the what the regular train has that the Acela doesn't it has everyone is associated with the university. All people on on the regular train are university. They're like I I read other people's computer screens. They're always like <laughs> administrators at universities, Great. or they're graduate students, or they're like tons of college students. Like the you college the number of college students on the regular train enormous. Huh. All right. That was that was a special bonus topic. <laughs> Listeners, <laughs> yeah, but, and if by bonus you mean send people from their podcasts, yes, that's a bonus. All right, and now let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. Running a small business is hard work. I know this from personal experience. Whether you have a handful of employees or if you're your own boss, every minute of the day matters, and every dollar counts. Discover the best way to save time and money with Stamps.com. Stamps.com lets you. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. It's convenient and it makes financial sense. You get the exact postage the instant you need it for any letter or package. No more overpaying. Plus, you even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. Donald Trump won across New York on Tuesday night, except in Manhattan, weirdly. And he nearly swept the 95 delegates available in the Republican primary. It seems to have restored the bounce to his step and the confidence to his campaign. He is looking forward like Hillary Clinton to a strong performance in the to be named later the primary Northeast. next the Northeast corridor primary next week. And he's hoping, I think, to use next week's the April 26th vote to restore the idea of, of inevitability. But John, his total victory in New York was basically priced into the Trump marketplace. Like when people were making predictions about the number of delegates he needed to get to 1237, they were already anticipating he would get a huge win there and a huge win next week. So even with a very strong performance next week, he still is, by a lot of the math, is like a little bit shy of 1237 if, if performance continues according to, to plan. There was one would look to be pretty reliable estimate that put him at 1199. So do you think that, A, the New York vote changed the dynamics of the race fundamentally because Cruz was so mm-hmm. weak? B, did it change the mathematics of Trump's delegate quest? Oh, yeah. Before I get to that, I think we got to just back on this question of what to name the, the next primary. Naming should be more clever so that if somebody really offers up some mm, sweet, perfect encapsulation of a thing, then fine. We all gravitate to it. But the ne- the necessity of a name should not require us to do things like Super Tuesday Two or the Acela primary. We should we should refuse bad naming, not keep repeating it because then people otherwise people will stop being clever. Uh, on the Trump New York thing, people expected him to do well, but the first question was was he going to get over fifty percent, and then was he going to get as many delegates as he did? And so I think he did better even than people might have expected. As you point out, he still has to perform at the top of his game. To get to 1237, New York is no real test of what the top of his game looks like now because it was his home state uh, and his principal challenger, Ted Cruz, had offended the people of that state and had no natural constituency in that state. Now, he doesn't, Ted Cruz doesn't have a natural constituency in the states that are coming up either in the way that he did in Wisconsin and Iowa. So Trump still benefits, but New York was a bit of a special case. I think, though, that there is something else about New York that helped Trump. One, it creates the impression that the retooling that he has gone, that he has undergone and that his his campaign has undergone, he's hired some new people at the top, which matters because he has such a small group at the top that when you change out the two or, two or three, you're basically making a 75 percent 
or even 80% change in your top structure. People say, oh, well, that's improved things. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I do think he's been more restrained. We haven't had these kinds of periodic eruptions that we had seen during the early part of the race. And I think that also gets a kind of validation from the, um, from the turnout, even though I think there's no correlation. I think the biggest important thing for him, though, with a victory like this is it provides an opportunity for him to make his big case, which is about fairness now and about the idea that if he has more delegates and votes going into Cleveland, regardless of whether he has the majority of the delegates, that he should get the nomination. But John, so just to understand the logistics of this, let's assume Trump does reasonably well and he comes to Cleveland with 1,200 delegates. So he needs another 37 to win on the first ballot. Does he win because there are enough un attached delegates that they just feel like, all right, I'm obliged to vote for him on this ballot? Or do, is it that he wins the on the second ballot? Because it doesn't right. seem like on the second ballot that he can win, given that uh, their Cruz seems to be stacking even the Trump delegations right. with people who support Cruz. It's a great question. So there are about 100 or so uncommitted delegates who are free agents who can vote their fancy. The reason the number is unclear is based on certain states, you can be uncommitted, but then you then you sort of pledge yourself of your own free will to a candidate and you have to abide by those. So we don't know. We won't know until the whole thing shakes out exactly how many of those people sloshing around there will be. Many of them will come out of Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania primary. And so if Donald Trump goes to Cleveland with 1,200, those free agents can come over to his side and it's over, even though he won't have the official number. The 54, there are 54 free agents in right. Pennsylvania. To your, that, that, the main fairness argument goes to them. So that's on the first ballot. If he doesn't win the first ballot, okay, the second, he, won't, he won't win the second ballot because the second ballot will be a test of how big the anti-Trump number is. But then when you get to a third ballot, the question of pain gets involved, which is by the time you've had the second ballot vote, there will be a lot of people freaking out about how can you not give him the nomination? Question, question. Yeah. What's the time gap between ballots? Such, well, I've been trying to get this question answered for two weeks from the Republican Party, and I can't get it. Because the reason the time gap is important is if, stick with me, everyone, if Rule 40B, which is left over from the last convention and may not even oh. may not even the, exist for this convention. The but Rule 40B porn people are just like, I can't, they are, hold oh. on, hold on. But the important thing is the Rule 40B may, may not be in play. But if it does come into play, what Rule 40B says is that if a person um, – and the reason it may not be in play is they make up fresh rules at the beginning of every convention. And that is determined by who's on the rules committee, which is another question and is interesting, but we won't go into it. If, though, something like Rule 40B is in effect, it means that to get on the ballot, you need to have signatures from the majority of delegates in eight states – to be viable or eligible to be nominated one hour before the voting. That's why your point about the gap between is important. The question is, if you if you believe in the white knight theory about either Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney or uh, Doogie Howser, Doogie Howser would have to go and get those affidavits and have them be ready one hour before that third ballot. Presumably, the third ballot would be the first time you'd hear a white knight candidate. My guess, because at, because at that point, they're going to be sitting there going, well, neither Trump nor Cruz has got it, and we don't see a way for that to be clear. There might be a, a Kasich moment there on the third ballot, but I don't know. But so, so even in in this, as you describe it, the fairness case that Trump is making is still a fairness case in order to win on the first ballot. Like I think if, if he doesn't get the first ballot, you're kind of saying he's cooked. I well, yes, that's certainly conventionalism, and I line up behind it, in the, except in this one way, which is that when he's making his case for the second and third ballot. He will still be saying those delegates who went and voted for Ted Cruz are not legitimate. And if you, the Republican Party, want to give a nominee through this stupid undemocratic process when I've won millions of more votes and while I've turned out millions of more people and while I've won million, not millions, <laughs> well, I've won lots and lots more delegates than everybody else, you can go ahead and do that. But you're going to have a huge conflagration in your party. All these people are not going to vote. It's going to be a total disaster. He's trying to look more presidential, talk more about unity so that people won't buy into the never Trump argument, which is, yikes, if you nominate this guy, it's going to be total chaos. Emily, when you've watched the the new discipline to Trump, he gave this victory speech on Tuesday night that was brief. It wasn't coherent, but it was restrained. Well, you, he didn't call Ted Cruz lying Ted. Wasn't yeah, that his Yeah, I mean, but the, 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 yeah, the, the metrics for Trump are weird. It's if you actually right. parse that speech, it was incoherent, you, it, grammatically incorrect. It didn't say anything that wasn't 
crazy histrionic platitudes. He just said it in a slightly lower tone of voice and didn't say lion head. He gets judged by a different set of rules than everybody else. Do you think he can successfully transition to this more restrained statesmanlike role? Or is it he is he temperamentally just going to be incapable of it? He won't last. He stayed off of the Sunday shows, much to late leaving John bereft and weeping for the last two weeks. Can he do it for longer? <laughs> I really hope not. I'm. I don't know whether my. But you hope not. Really, what? I just can't. I hope he can't hold it together oh, okay. because to me the very worst outcome is Trump is the nominee and then things get boring. I mean, terrible as a journalist and uh, for the entertainment value of this election, and really terrible if it somehow lulls people to sleep into supporting him and then we actually elect him president. So I don't like any of those outcomes. Therefore, I am my bias is towards the idea of like, no, he won't be able to hold it together. The whole point of Donald Trump is that he's a showman and he's shocking people. And that's gotten him most of the way to where he is now anyway. So why would he deep in his heart, no matter who he hires, truly believe that he should stop? I think the challenges will be really interesting to watch because you have a lot of footage and sound from Donald Trump over the years so that even if he's being restrained and not talking, his Democratic opponent will have a lot and the PAC supporting his Democratic opponent will have a field day. <laughs> the primary is next week. Then the week after that is Indiana, which is on May 3rd. And it seems like the Cruz campaign and maybe the anti-Trump forces in general see Indiana as kind of uh, the the big place that we make our stand. That is the, that's where you stand and try to stop him because presumably he'll have come off of another set of big wins this week. And if they can stop him in Indiana, then there's still a credible case that he shouldn't that he won't get the majority of delegates and that he shouldn't get the nomination. Is that about right, John? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two places to stop him. One is Indiana is a place where you can stop him by just with the delegates point, but also potentially knock him, unsettle him. And the date of Indiana is May 3rd. And then you still have a ways to go to the 7th of June. I was, I mean, you want to try and set up, use Indiana to try to set up California. I just, I, I think it just, every time he wins, it's not just about delegates. I think he adds really to that larger fairness argument. It's a bad argument. It's a hard argument to make. What do you mean? The whole, insane. the whole system is stupid and arbitrary. It's like, it's not, a, it's not a fair right. election. Like it's not, a, it's not a, no, it's but- not, it's not an election. It's not a national election. It's a series of kind of weird idiosyncratic state by state contests with each of which has its own different loony rules. And the, the idea that, that you know the that you can pick your metric. Your my metric is oh I got the most votes or most delegates, and therefore I should be the nominee. It has nothing to do with actually how the rules of the party are set up. Or the rules of the party are whoever gets the a majority of delegates at our convention wins. And here and if you can get it by hook or crook by by stacking the deck with your delegates uh, like Ted Cruz is doing. Then by all means, it's it's I, I just I guess I I it's unappealing that argument. You just made it. It's not a good argument. I do not elect you the person who should be making this argument. The rules of the party stink. And so people are not going to be attracted to them as the way of resolving this contest. They're going to think, who cares about the rules of the party? One person got more votes and more delegates. They got close. Good enough. I, know. I also th- well. think when you get to this stage, all like it's going to be a time for speaking up and. And I think if you're a Republican candidate, you really have you're making a choice. If you say, like, the rules are the rules. I mean, people remember who was on the Kennedy side and who was on the Carter side in 1980 and who and a little less so in 76 with Reagan and Ford. But these are indelible moments. And so when when Mitch McConnell says the rules are the rules, that basically means he's anti-Trump. Now, we know he's anti-Trump, but like. They just spent a boatload of money in the the 2014 elections trying to beat back the Tea Party challengers in all these different Senate races. And they were pretty successful in doing it, but it required a large, sustained, heavily financed effort. If you have – you can imagine the situation going so poorly in Cleveland that you create another – you just put fuel on the Tea Party anger at the the elites in the party that that reverberates – for some time. Well, sure. But on the other hand, if you have Donald Trump as your nominee and you could have had somebody else, you may you may destroy the reputation yeah, of your party that's for right. a that's generation. Exactly. Right. And now, yes, you make, of course, you make the that's the, the right counter argument that then which bounces off into this other weird place, which is the 
lose with who's the better guy to lose with because you'll send finally send a message to this uh, difficult part of the party that is maximalist and wants unreasonable things. Oh, in that case, it's better to lose with Cruz. Lose. Is that going to be their? That, that's going to be know. the 2016 slogan. Lose well, with Cruz. But see, I don't know because then I, I I don't I haven't. I mean, I hear that bandied about, and I just think like, all right, let's deal with the reality before us because. Um, but I don't know which message gets sent, and however they lose, there will be a rationale for why they lose lost that will allow people to behave in whichever way they want. Right. And now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Score Big. Did you know that 40% of all live event tickets go unsold? Did you know there's a place to get these seats at huge savings? It's called scorebig.com. Scorebig works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get their unsold seats at unpublished prices. Only at scorebig.com can you name a ticket price and be guaranteed to pay below box office, up to 60% off. Here's what you do. Go to scorebig.com and find the event and seats you want. Then make an offer with Scorebig's Name a Ticket Price feature. You'll get an instant answer and save up to 60% on your tickets. No surprise fees. You get free shipping and unbeatable prices on great seats. And when you're in great seats, you actually enjoy the game or the show all the more. Next time you go see any game or show, go to Scorebig first and see how much you can save. Go to scorebig.com right now, click on the microphone, enter promo code GABFEST, and you'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's scorebig.com, promo code GABFEST. Again, scorebig.com, promo code GABFEST. United States versus Texas, which sounds like essentially the story of the last 170 years, more or less. (laughs) (laughs) But in fact, United States versus Texas is the big immigration case of the Supreme Court term. Thanks to Justice Scalia's death, it is another likely 4-4 standoff between the liberals and conservatives on the court. Uh, Emily, we've talked about this case before. We previewed it. um, But tell us again, remind everyone what it is and what the main issues are. This case, it revolves around President Obama's efforts to fulfill a big, probably his most important campaign promise, or at least a campaign idea um, for Latinos of granting deportation relief to a substantial fraction of the country's 11 million undocumented immigrants. So you remember the dreamers, the children who people who were brought here without papers when they were kids, Congress, there was an effort for Congress to pass legislation has been for years an effort. It failed during Obama's first term. And at that that time, Obama said, Congress, you got to do something. I can't legally do this myself. But then Obama changed his mind and he signed, he calls it executive action. He's careful not even to use the word executive order, but essentially a plan, shall we say, to make it easy to get relief from deportation for three years if you are... Uh, It's an expansion of the Dreamers program, so the kids, and then the parents of the Dreamers, too. And the idea is that you should have to not have a criminal record and pay some money, and then you should get to stay here. And that would mean you would qualify for work authorization and certain other government benefits. And then while Obama can himself say that you would get to stay beyond this three years, you know, the idea is that you're creating some political momentum and that eventually someone else comes along and grants uh, a path to permanent residency for people. So does the president have the authority to to do this, to wave this magic wand? The administration says this is so in within our power. Um, this is just prosecutorial discretion. The country only deports right now about 400,000 people a year anyway. There's no way we're going after all 11 million. We don't have the resources to do that. Congress never gave us the money to do that. And so all we're really talking about here is giving people a heads up about who is probably not on the deportation list so that they can plan and their lives won't be in legal limbo. And the state of Texas is one of 26 states challenging this order saying, no way. This is a whole big deal, new granting of immigration relief. It it messes with our sovereignty. 
and it far exceeds the president's power. And the fact that you're trying to like make it seem small is just totally ridiculous. You're changing the status of these four million people. Right. It's sort of a weird thing to have the states um, be the plaintiffs here because if someone's power got taken away from them by the president's actions, it was really Congress, not the states. And so one of the threshold questions, as lawyers like to say in this case, in fact, the threshold question is whether Texas and these other states have standing to sue. Do they have the kind of concrete injury that you can get relief from um, from a court? And Texas says, yes, our injury is we have to pay for driver's licenses for all these people who you have um, deemed can stay here. That's part of the deal. And we don't want to pay that money. And the administration's response to that is like, don't provide the driver's licenses then, you know, change the way you do that, to which Texas says, and then you will actually John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts at oral argument said, and then you would immediately sue Texas for doing that. So that's the sort of... Those are two of the three issues. The last issue has to do with notice and comment, this boring but important part of the law governing federal agencies, where if, if you're going to make a big change to a rule, you're supposed to give the public a chance to weigh in first. Th this is the, the administration says, all we did here was issue a general statement of policy. That's why we skipped notice and comment. The And if it's a 4-4 tie i want to get to the merits of it in a second but if it's a 4-4 tie it doesn't establish any law about this there's another it will be brought back in front of a nine-person supreme court later and the standing question right. could be, they could be ruled they could lose the standing question that time well right but if it's a 4-4 tie then the fifth circuit the appellate court ruling stands and that right. ruling was in favor of texas if it's a 4-4 tie essentially this granting of deportation relief will be dead because right, by but, the time it comes back, Obama will be out of office. Right, but if if a, if a Clinton administration kept it, then yes, then, it could come back with another Supreme Court. I'm not troubled by the idea that the president can set priorities and say, uh, you know, we're going to prioritize deporting criminals and prioritize deporting certain other categories of people, and we're really going to place you know here's our published you know policy about where we're going to place people and and we're really going to have low priority about deporting people who are the parents of of legal immigrants or the parents of dreamers or whatever it is uh that seems okay like to prioritize but to then actively affirmatively grant specific benefits to those people does seem like it's beyond uh it's beyond just prioritizing it does seem like it's creating a whole new new set of rules and regulations and and uh, orders, which are either A, regulation in the subject notice and comment, or B, effectively circumventing Congress, which has is, which is chosen not to make those laws. Why is it an affirmative action a problem as opposed to just the sort of setting priorities? I, if I am right about this, I think my understanding is that the reason that people get driver's licenses and work authorization has to do with the way in which this action um, intersects with old regulations from the 1980s, actually Reagan era um, regulations about what it means to be in a pool of people to whom deportation relief has been granted. So in other words, that that consequence of this granting of deportation relief doesn't come from the Obama executive action it's like pre-existing and you just like kind of go into this channel and that's where you end up you mean if you Does are considered a certain category of person then you get these benefits but that per category of person is people who are lawfully present right and uh, the pro so at the at the way that justice kagan i believe tried to save the Don Verley, the Solicitor General, was to say, like, if you had struck those words lawfully present from your order, would it change from your action? Would it change it at all? And he said, um, no, it wouldn't change it at all. We could have gotten rid of that. But you can see how everyone's like hunting for some way to tell what status these people have and why it gets them into this like um, nice place of work authorization and certain benefits. Yeah, I mean, I, I think hiding behind the idea that there's some Reagan era uh, regulation where if you're lawfully present, you get it. That seems weaselly. It's clear that President Obama is trying to affirmatively give these people benefits. Now, I think he should. I think it's great. I think they deserve it. It's fantastic. But just if I were Congress, I would be annoyed. Yeah. And if I were calling balls and strikes on behalf of the balance, maintaining the balance of power between the president and Congress, I would think, oh, come on. 
Right. I mean, that's the problem with this case. The other way of thinking about it, though, is that all the president did was to say ahead of time what was going to happen to lots of people anyway. Right. So this just gave a big heads up to a big group of people. Hey, you are probably at the front of the line. Things are looking good for you. It's not like this whole mechanism got created out of whole cloth. We've had ways of getting deferred action on deportation. Right. Immigration law has provided for that for many years. That's not a whole, like, new idea. Yeah, but it is immigration law. Like, it's not immigration executive action. Right. But he was just saying to a group of people, hey, this law applies to you, probably. We're still going to look at you case by case. We still are exercising prosecutorial discretion. We can still deport you if we want. But you have really good odds of getting this particular designation, which was pre-existing. I mean, it's this is the thing. It's it's immigration law is like a mess of technicalities and words like deferred action, which don't you know, really like sing. And then you have this thing of like, well, wait a second. Congress never said that you were changing all these people's status. And then it's hard to explain how like, well, we're not exactly changing everyone's status. So Democrats, I think, are looking at this case and saying, this is why we need a ninth justice. And this is why we need the Senate to do its job, because you end up with, you know, a mess like this. And you end up with the Supreme Court not even deciding a really important case and and uh, actions that literally improve the lives of four million people in a, in a way that I think most uh, most of us, most Americans would support um, can't be do- taken because of this, this uh, freeze on the Supreme Court. Republicans are saying, no, this is why the court is too important to surrender without a fight. Right. Who is winning this battle politically, do you think? The poll numbers about whether um, Merrick Garland should get hearings and a vote are going up in his favor, not like by some huge dramatic amount. And I don't see people like beating drums every day in the streets, but they're they're moving in this direction. I, it'll be interesting to see if they can ever make anything of this when it gets into those Senate races in the fall. I uh, I'm skeptical. I mean, it's a nice base turnout measure for really for both sides. So it for maybe everybody, a, maybe it's a wash. BTM based turnout, right? Measure. And he still could get confirmed if Hillary wins the election after the election and before Obama leaves office. Right. Okay, let's leave that topic there. And now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Trunk Club. There are two types of men out there. There are guys who love shopping for clothes but are short on time, and there are those of us who hate it. Either way, take heart. Now you can get clothes that fit perfectly and look amazing without ever stepping into a store again, thanks to Trunk Club. Trunk Club makes it easy to look your best in clothes that fit. They'll pick your clothes from over 80 top brands and ship them right to your door. Keep what you like, send back what you don't. Trunk Club is not a subscription service. There's no monthly fee. Your stylist is free. Shipping is always free. And you have 10 days to try on the clothes risk-free. Make a statement at your next big event with a look that's handpicked just for you and your style. Get started today at trunkclub.com slash gabfest. That's trunkclub.com slash gabfest. Remember, trunkclub.com slash gabfest. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are, what do you, what do, you do in a nice April weekend? A nice April, is, is it Kentucky Derby weekend? Is it a mint julep or not yet? Not yet Kentucky Derby. When you're anticipating your mint julep, it's John. Passover this weekend. Have you forgotten we, that entirely? I guess you didn't want to ask John about that. But well, um, when John's having true. his when John's having his matzah cocktail, his uh, his, <laughs> his delicious Manischewitz cocktail that that is artisanal Passover cocktails. It's coming. Oh yeah, don't they already exist? No doubt, no doubt. When you're having your artisanal uh, Passover cocktail, John, what will you be chattering about? Uh, I guess I'll chatter. Um, I don't know if this is really Passover or fair, but um, I was doing uh, some reading about um, the uh, Maria Reynolds affair, which um, the, those of you who are devotees of uh, Hamilton, the musical or Hamilton, the story or Hamilton, the president. Um, no, not about, the president. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry. Sorry. I've got presidents <laughs> in my brain. So that was a trick for those of you uh to, uh, yeah, Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, By the who, time Lin-Manuel Miranda gets done with him, he'll be president. Who uh, be president. who is who is arguably a stopped from 
ever rising to president because of uh, the Reynolds affair. Although I, I really wonder about that. It, certainly in a musical, that's the case. I, I feel like it's a little murkier in real life. Anyway, what strikes me about this is a couple of things. There's a great essay by Jacob Katz Kogan, I think maybe is how you pronounce it, The Reynolds Affair and the Politics of Character, that I was reading. A couple of things that are striking. First of all, he was busted in 1791. Basically, a group of people that included James Madison, three gentlemen went to him and accused him of taking money. It wasn't the affair that was the problem. It was using his position as Treasury Secretary to basically steal. He deals with them and takes care of it and offers the, shows the letters and all that. It then goes underground for like six years. It doesn't come up again. So in the play, you know, it's all happening at one time, of course, which makes sense. But it happened again until 1797. The, the person who uncovers it is a guy named James Thompson Callender, who is a muckraking scandal monger. He gets it from a guy named John Beckley, who would go on to be the librarian of Congress. Beckley has a copy of basically the notes that Monroe and the others took of their meeting with Hamilton, exonerating Hamilton, but also filling out all the details of his affair. So Beckley gets run out of his job by the Federalists, arguably because Hamilton wanted him out of the job and wanted a, a Federalist to have the post. And so Beckley is angry about that and gives the documents to Calendar. So it's basically Hamilton gets screwed by his own like self-dealings. And then I didn't realize that Maria Reynolds then goes on to divorce from her husband, James Reynolds, who's been extorting Hamilton. And who, who defends her in the divorce? Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. <laughs> Aaron Burr. But I didn't realize that. You have like, to remember there are only like seven people who lived know, in America exactly. then. So, <laughs> exactly. It's not surprising. Uh, he was, Burr was probably the only lawyer. So Burr, who Hamilton later screws in his in the election of 1800, uh, ends up helping the woman who ended up ending Hamilton's career. And But you're right. It makes you feel it's like, like a college all, dorm. Oh, and the, the more, no, sorry. The more important thing that, I, that I've forgotten is that Aaron Burr, the one who shoots Hamilton in a duel, is the one that talks Hamilton and Monroe, Hamilton and Monroe, Monroe almost get into a duel themselves over this because Hamilton thinks Monroe can exculpate him and Monroe refuses to. And so Hamilton has to write his defense, his public defense of his affair, which ends up like multiplying times 50, the problem. And who breaks, who breaks up? Who is, I guess he must have been Monroe's second, who breaks up the duel and keeps it from happening? Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, sir. It's like there are four people in the world. Anyway, that's the tale of, and she, Maria Rellins, in the end becomes like this upstanding she was oh, first right lady. She, she became first lady. Yeah, no, but she, she becomes like this. She up, married Martin Van Buren. Upstanding, um, virtuous woman. Emily, what's your chatter? I really enjoyed a piece in Gawker this week by Sam Biddle called I Have No Idea What This Startup Does and Nobody Will Tell Me. A really funny investigation of a startup called Maybe Helena, Maybe Helena that doesn't seem to really do anything but is involved many famous people sort of anyway what i really liked about it was that it was preparation for the return of silicon valley the tv show which my children are totally obsessed with and oh. we will welcome back i believe this week it will, oh, there will yes. be a celebration Can't of wait <laughs> my chatter is also in the gawker media empire there was a story in deadspin this week which i loved which was uh it's, it's called the photo that changed the boston marathon forever i think that's the title by david davis and it's a piece about the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. So the Boston Marathon for- To officially run it. To officially yeah. run it. Yeah. The Boston Marathon was, for its early years, was like by default a male race. And they, the idea was that women were too weak and fragile to run a whole marathon. There were some women who snuck on to marathon courses and ran it. And it was obvious that like, this was this, like incredibly stupid um, restriction. But in, in 1967, a woman named Catherine Switzer, who'd heard about some other woman, women who'd run marathons unofficially, thought, I'll run. And so she registered for the Boston Marathon, just used her first initial K, Switzer, and wore kind of a baggy outfit and get, got in the race. And she ran. She ended up running with a couple of friends, including her boyfriend, which is important, who is a Olympic aspiring Olympic hammer thrower. And about two miles in, the press following some of the runners in a in a car noticed that she's a woman. And so they alert the race organizers, including a man named Jock Semple, who's a very irritable Scotsman who is in charge of the, the marathon, that there's a woman running in his race. And Jock Semple 
goes bananas, races out onto the court, uh, to, onto the course, tries to yank her number off of off of her uh, sweatshirt, and yells at her, "Get the hell out of my race!" But before he can grab the number off her, is body checked by her boyfriend, and Switzer just keeps running and ends up running the whole race. And is all this is all captured by a Boston photographer named Harry Trask in a series of wonderful photos of the of Semple approaching Switzer and then getting bumped away. You know, it's a great episode. It's like then, you know, then the, the race opens up after this. Although Switzer's boyfriend ends up being suspended by the AAU from track and field for sort of helping her out. Uh, but the the nice code of the story is that Switzer is, is now the broadcaster. She broadcasts the Boston Marathon. She's been doing it for the last four years. She ended up becoming friends with Semple. She's a great advocate for women, women running and women racing. And I think she's she's trying next year on the 2017 marathon to run to run it on the 50th anniversary of the first time she ran it. And she's hoping to beat her time. She thinks she can beat her time from 1967, which is also wow, a tribute to- Wow, that's amazing. Now, that's amazing. Now, to add one little bit to this is Bobby Gibb is the first woman to have run it, but it was not official. Yeah, she ran and it she was given the trophy by Atsedi Baisa, who's the winner of this year's marathon in recognition of what of she did. Run, yeah, yeah, 50 years ago. Yeah. Or however many years ago. Yeah, Boston Marathon. I don't know if they still let you, but when I, I'm, I ran Boston- in 92, but just, they just let you on the course. You just can run the, run the race. Oh, is that how you did it in 92? Yeah. For you, you that's awesome. I didn't yeah, know that. I can never that's... qualify. Like the times are forbidding. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That does it for the show this week. Our intern is Al Biscard Church for a little while longer. If you want to be an intern, let us know. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, chief content officer for Panoply. The network we're a part of, iTunes.com slash Panoply, is where you can find the entire roster of podcasts. Uh, follow our Twitter feed at, at @slategabfest. Please follow it. That's where things happen. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. And subscribe to us in iTunes. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week at our Atlanta Live show, which I hope you're at. See you there. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.